Welcome into the program, Dr. Shirley Thompson, Associate Professor of Natural Resources of the In- Natural Resources Institute, University of Manitoba, and we're going to be talking about um, the the St. Teresa's Point and and really a look at First Nations housing crisis. Uh, Dr. Thompson, thanks for joining me. How are you? Thanks, Jim. Very good. Can you start to talk about this important issue? Yeah, and I appreciate you doing it as well because we do think it's important and and uh, um. I want to just start by having you paint a picture for our listeners of the conditions of the current state of homes on First Nations, such as St. Teresa's Point. Well, it's very overcrowded. And as was mentioned in the article, people are having to take shifts. So there are three grown families living in, in houses. These are often dilapidated because they weren't built for so many people. So uh, the mold builds up, there's structural issues. Uh, 44% of housing across Canada has some major repair issue. Often it can be electrical wiring, structural issues, plumbing, the lack of plumbing. In many of these communities, they're running off cisterns. Um, So a very problematic water supply and sewage supply. And some communities, um, 10% in the Island Lake area have buckets because they have a broken cistern or they've never been plumbed with even a cistern. So how would you describe it like for like myself? Can you tell us and our listeners, uh, what would you tell someone who's never set foot in one of these communities? It really feels like a different Canada or not Canada. This is um, third world conditions, the dilapidation, the lack of infrastructure. And the moment you set foot there, um, you step out of the airport and there are no paved roads. There are very limited infrastructure, uh, no hospitals in, in Manitoba. There's only one, First Nation that has a hospital. Well, there's 63 First Nations, so um, and many of them over 10,000. Well, we know many other communities that are not that are not First Nations of less than a thousand that have hospitals. So there's a real inequity, and so it really doesn't look like communities you've seen before, especially in the remote fly-in ones. Their infrastructure is very, very limited. So in your research, Dr. Thompson, what do we know about the physical and mental health repercussions of poor living conditions like the ones being described from St. Teresa's Point? Well, uh, there's linkages to suicide, suicide ideation, a lot of mental health issues, especially with COVID. There was lockdown in these communities. Well, can you imagine having so many people, 32 people in your house and not being able to Um, really move out of it because of, you know, severe, the the lack of facilities to handle COVID in these communities and the risk associated with not having running water as well, right? So um, it results in more contagious diseases. In fact, in Canada, in First Nations, there's 50 times the rate of tuberculosis. So um, you're seeing, it's not just a few percent more 
it's a whole different ball game of risk for for tuberculosis and other diseases because of you know this high overcrowding that's taking place and the lack of you know uh, it's now improving around plumbing but for the housing it's getting worse in terms of the the growth of the population has meant higher overcrowding and the um, funding model, uh, which means that people can't go to the bank to uh, finance their house, which very few people in the world could finance their house out of their back pocket, um, means that houses can't get built. And they don't own the land, so they couldn't sell it if they did build it. Right. And so, um, and that, you know, short and long-term impacts does this take? I I think it's a variant, right? Like we can't help or fix it tomorrow, but there's some short-term and long-term impacts I would think that you've found. Yes. So um, I have been doing home building uh, programs. They're not apprenticeship programs because the apprenticeship has so many barriers to First Nations. That's a problem that has to be fixed. It's training people how to build homes with local materials, with, um, you know, ways of building in all the other financing, which is employment training, uh, instead of um, people going to university outside of their community, actually using those funds to train in the community and build houses. So using every available fund in order to support house building and working, you know, I'm with the University of Manitoba and we're working with the architecture department, the natural resources to look at forest management um, and using local logs where possible. That's not always possible, but in a lot of communities it is. However, there are some real barriers even there. You know, lots of when there's great wood in the forest, there are timber um, um, lumber grading restrictions which prevent people from building with their own. Right. So, so yes, there are some some huge issues that can't be resolved. Um, I think this five billion class action suit is needed. $5 billion was the uh, amount in 2017 that a, a standing committee of the House of Commons said it would take to um, build houses. So, yes, we need, it's needed. It was needed in 2017. More is needed now in order to fix the situation with housing. But if we can train people, if we can um, I would say look at how uh, philanthropic organizations can contribute in the meantime. Um, every Everybody who can do something should be doing something because this is creating a great um, mental and physical health issues in these communities. And we don't want to see young people dying of suicide and people being homeless, the growing homeless situation. Right. And and I should have mentioned to our listeners who weren't aware, I, I should have started with this, but I'll get to it now because I, I do want to ask you about this as well, Dr. Thompson. But earlier this week, the chief of remote First Nation in Northern Manitoba, that being the chief of St. Teresa Point, uh, proposed a national class action lawsuit against the federal government for failing to address the housing crisis in Indigenous communities. 
Chief Elvin Flett of St. Teresa, Teresa Point First Nation seeking $5 billion in compensation, as Dr. Thompson was referencing, as well as an order that the federal government provide adequate housing on First Nations. The community says there's nearly 470 families that need homes. Um, so, Doctor, the Chief's inviting other First Nations to join the suit. What implications could there be if other First Nations join this lawsuit as well? I think a lot of First Nations have are completely justified in doing this. Um, there is there are barriers for people to build housing. You know, you're seeing on the front page another headline that that only the wealthy can afford homes in Canada now, and isn't that horrible? Well, First Nations, because of these legal barriers, because of the Indian Act, could never build homes. This is not something they put in place in. 1870, you know, this has a long history uh, since 1876, the Indian Act declaring that everyone is a person except for an Indian, which meant they're wards of the state. And although their land is theirs, they're, it's in a trust. So it creates this impossible, a very difficult to understand situation that their own native land, they can't take to the bank and build on their, everything has to go through the government. Now, nobody else, uh, like that's, that's something in a democratic country that's unheard of. It seems very racist and there's legislation that has to be removed in order to you know, uh, open the doors and give equality to First Nations. Right now, there's very, very restrictive financing, very restrictive development um, control that they have. They really have very limited control over what can be done on, on the communities they live in, which is absurd and impossible in you know 2023 in Canada yeah it's true it, I mean it seems bizarre that you have to say that but that's kind of how I feel too that when we your first answer of how you would describe it I'm just like is this Canada like uh, so um the final one for you though dr. Thompson I really appreciate your time and your insight on this important topic um are you able to uh, speak to what the next steps would be in this lawsuit then for the class of action, um, they have a lawyer. I think everyone uh, can next gets on board, and I think they have such a strong case. This has been documented by the House of Commons. There is so much material, and it has gone back years. They have just, uh, even the same community, St. Teresa Point in 2016, said it's a ticking time bomb. Well, that time bomb has gone off a long, long time ago. And now there is, you know, something should have been done earlier, hasn't been done, has to be done now. With COVID, we saw people were dying for in this situation. And five, 50 times the tuberculosis, people have been dying for a long time. Uh, this $5 billion to build houses, to give people a life is part of reconciliation, but it, sh it should have, you know, it it's realizing this is the truth of the matter. And now we have to reconcile and, and make up for this difference. And everyone deserves a healthy environment to raise their family in. 
and should have the same rights as everyone else. The right to, to you know, afford a house, to to ha- have a healthy um, life, and not have to grow up with thirty people in your house, with twenty people in your house, just uh, small houses where people will will invest in them, but never be able to own them because they are on reserve. Right. Yeah. Well, we appreciate that you're spending the time on not only what you do, Dr. Thompson, but for sharing this insight with us and, and we'll see where this story goes and hopefully in a much better direction. Thank you for this. Thank you so much for covering this. Right now, I'm very happy to bring into the program Mandy Loss, Certified Athletic Therapist at the University of Manitoba. And Mandy, thank you for allowing us to update everybody on the latest news there for your patients, but also for joining us today. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I wanted to have you on. You're the head therapist for Bison Hockey, Basketball and Football because I've been covering sports and hockey my entire career since the early 90s and I got out of college. And I always love the talk around, you know, the athlete who plays injured, the athlete who plays hurt. Um, but for whatever reason this year, when listening to, to Florida Panthers head coach Paul Maurice listing the injuries that players were going through, including a broken sternum in which Matthew Kachuk played a game four but couldn't play in game five, and then the fact that Aaron Ekblad needs surgery from round one and he played three more rounds and, and Brandon Montour and all that, I just wanted to get, as an athletic therapist, the overall thought process or, or how things work when it comes to such injuries such as significant ones like this and, and getting players back into the field to play. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, with any injury, we obviously do an assessment on it to figure out what is happening with it and and how severe it is. Um, Obviously, in, you know, the professional leagues, they have access to all of the the imaging and things like that right off the hop as well. Um, But we do functional testing as well with these athletes. So we'll check to see how... Um, how they can function, basically, and how strong they are. So some athletes just, you know, if they pre-injury, they're really strong and and healthy pre-injury. Some of these injuries, um, they can play through some of them. And I'm glad you brought that up because we hear these horrific injuries that players are playing through. And I would think if it was regular season, they wouldn't. Um, how is that ever decided? Like if, if somebody had a broken sternum in, in February, I don't think they would go back on the ice the next game, but yet in the playoffs, they can't. Yeah, you know what, I really can't speak to professional sports because that's not the area that I work in. Um, but definitely something like a, a broken sternum would not be something that we would allow athletes to go back to. But thought process would be that, you know, it, are they at risk for further injury um, is, is mainly the biggest um, deciding factor of, as to whether or not they can play or not. Um, I'm going to take a guess and say that in professional sports, um, especially when it comes to playoffs, there might be a little bit more um, liberal decision making. Um, <laughs> but, um, but at the end of the day, they're still going to make sure that the athlete is safe to to play. Um, you know, there are taping and bracing that things can be done. I won't say that we're going to tape a tape a fracture or, or a break and let people go back in, but they're definitely they've been cleared by multiple levels, not just. You know, not just the athletic therapist, but I'm sure there's been orthopedic surgeons involved and other doctors involved, you know, especially with that uh, Kachuk injury. 
um, that would have made it safe, cleared him so that they knew that it was safe for him to play. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you speaking to the difference between amateur athletes and professional ones because I should have clarified that because that, there is the, like that's one of the things I always talk to about fans as well is they're like, well, if I separated my shoulder, I, I couldn't go to work tomorrow um, uh, and I and I wouldn't. And I always say, well, yes, but we're also not in the category that we actually, when we're done work, have a doctor waiting to work on us right there um, right. And, and that kind of health care. And, and I don't want to say that that's, you know, better or worse, but I'm just saying that we, you know, in, in amateur sports and, and even in everyday life, we don't have a doctor basically waiting for us to step into his office at any waking moment to help us. Absolutely. Or, or anything else, like a lot of the, in professional sports, they have a lot of extra things that, um, that we just don't have access to as, you know, general population um you're right like the surgeons and and the specialists that they readily have available especially here in canada where you know our healthcare system you there's wait lists and things like that um and our bodies aren't our commodities at the amateur level right where that's their livelihood and um in a professional setting um and so things might be a little bit you know i I, i'm the input from the athlete is a little bit more at the professional level than it would be at an amateur level. Right. And you know how times have changed too, right? Because I, I hear these injuries, the sternum, the broken uh, shoulder, the, the or sorry, the broken foot, the shoulder, and all this. And I, I think back to a time even 20 years ago when, you know, Eric Lindros, when he didn't want to play because he was cleared to play, but said, no, I, I have concussion issues. I'm still not feeling well. Mm-hmm. You know, and how that was pressured on him at the professional level. And, and really he was sort of labeled as a certain kind of athlete Whereas now he's at the forefront of concussion clinics and, and we all look back at that. And, and that's what I kind of find is sort of uh, at the professional level anyways, interesting because on one point, if you get a concussion, you can't even look at the ice for seven days. And on mm-hmm. the other, on the other hand, if you break your sternum, we'll find a way to get you on the ice. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a difference between, I, I'll, I mean, a concussion is a physical injury. It's an injury to your brain, um, but your brain it's a lot more delicate than the rest of your body in all reality, right? I mean, it's, it houses you, it, it, it functions for you. And um, there's just been so much more um, research on um, mild brain injuries or concussions in the past, you know, I want to, I'll say two decades, but I'll even say the last decade of, you know, post-concussive concussion syndrome and things like that, that, having a, a concussion can affect you for the rest of your life. And we're seeing that, right? So um, where concussions are, are involved, I think there's just more, the, the conservative decision-making there is because we don't know how each individual is going to react to um, adding stresses to their body again after a concussion, like physical activity. Right. And, and the one thing that you did touch on that I kind of, um, sort of lean towards uh, being okay in my mind anyways is where it's amateur professional like you said if the injury can't get any worse um, mm-hmm. and, and that's something interesting like say you took a puck in the skate like Ekblad I don't know if that's was what broke his foot but you know and, and all of a sudden well you know you could play on this you could get it fixed now you could get it fixed in two months it's not going to get worse then we hear broken foot and we automatically assume how he's playing but then we don't know what the actual assessment is right? That's correct and I mean broken foot there's if the anatomy of the foot, there's a lot of there's a lot of bones in the foot, and not that there's a difference between a you know a fracture is a fracture whether it's displaced or not, but if it's a stable fracture, meaning that you know the bones aren't shifted, the bones aren't moving, then there is bracing that they could do inside the skate to protect it. And if it's not causing pain and they've got full strength, 
and it's not bothering them when they're on the ice skating, then it would be safer to return them to play. Do amateur athletes push to get on just as much as professional athletes do? Um, some of them, yeah. I don't think that um, I don't think the push is there to be like, you know, absolutely, I'm going back. I don't care what you say. Um, especially at the university, they really don't have that say. <laughs> we do have <laughs> we do have final say as to whether or not they can return or not. And um, I mean, even at our level, which I, I mean, it's I'll call it an elite sport or you know, high level sport. Um, we're still looking for the, the long-term health of the athlete. We're not looking at the next game. So, you know, if it's something that, you know, can cause pain or, or persistent symptoms for, you know, longer than a couple of weeks or a couple of months, whatever the injury might be, then we're not going to allow them to go into play. I can confirm that at the university or college level because I always was adamant I was going to play, but that was an injured Mandy. They just would never let me play. Oh. <laughs> So, <laughs> nothing but, to do with the injuries. Yeah, but I was out of it too, and they still wouldn't let me. So, yeah, uh, but but on a on a more serious note, doing what you do, and I, I fully again understand that it's at the amateur and and the U sport le, uh, level athlete. Are you surprised at some of the professional athletes and what they play through? Yes, especially actually the the Kachuk one actually really surprised me. Um, the sternum is. I mean, everything, you're breathing, your ribs are attached to them and breathing would be difficult to do. Um, and when I read what Palmer said about how um, he had to be helped putting his equipment on and tying his skates and, you know, even putting his jersey on, I thought, well, you're going to play a contact sport. How does that not hurt you even, you know, going out there? I mean, rotation of your trunk when you're skating would be painful if you can't even put your arms over your head to put your jersey on. So uh, it's it's impressive that he was able to play through that. Well, that's – and you said impressive, and that's what I thought too. And I'm not trying to harp on Paul Maurice, but he kind of reads those lists at the end of playoffs to give his players credit, right? Like he's not yeah. trying to showboat or anything. He's trying to go look at how much these these players care and passion, how much he likes his players. But also I'm, I'm listening to the list and I'm going – and he said himself today in an exit meeting uh, to check that my brother was staying with me. He had to get me out of bed and my teammates had to get me in my uniform and put skates on. And I thought to myself – at some point, like, do you not just go, I can't do this, which he did eventually do in game five. Yeah. And and that's the other part I was going to, you know, my add on to that after that was as much as I say it's impressive. I mean, was it the smartest thing to do? Mm, probably not. You know, <laughs> I was, I mean, it's your body and you, I think a lot of times they don't think long-term I get it. It was the Stanley cup playoffs and then the Stanley cup finals. Like it's a big deal for these people. Not everybody gets that opportunity to be there. Um, but long-term health, like, will that impact him down the road? Right. You don't it, know that, right? So. Yeah. And also there's that adage that when I read that, I'm just like, well, I would look at you as a coach and go, there's no way you can help us tonight. Right. Like, yeah. even, even to have you out there, I appreciate it. But when you can't even dress yourself, I don't know how you're going to go to the net and score a goal. That's right. And I didn't, I mean, I didn't watch it, so I don't know how um, how effective he was on the ice. Once he was injured, it's actually kind of impressive. I I'm, now yeah. that I hear this, I mean, he wasn't like he. You could tell he was hurting, but I was also yeah. kind of like I'm impressed that he's actually got to that spot or got made this move. Okay, that and fair enough because it's. I mean, there's times you see an injury and you know they're kind of at the cusp of you know can they go back? Can they not go back? And okay, yeah, you can go back, and then you watch them on the field of play, and you go, yeah, you know they're not they're not doing any any good out there um and they're probably 
potentially hurting the rest of the team. So probably best if they don't go back in, which we've done before as well. And just the way my mind works, I'm like, there's got to be a healthy scratch going, I could do better than that. Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> a fully healthy body going, I know who, yeah. I know who he is, but I can move at least. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, last one for you, Mandy. What is a broken sternum? Um, so the sternum is the bone in the center of your chest. Uh, so basically it holds your rib cage together in the front of your chest. And just like any other bone in the body, it's a broken one. It, there'd probably be a crack in it. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't have been an unstable one. Otherwise you definitely wouldn't have been playing because that sternum protects your heart and your lungs. How do you fix that? Time. Time. It just heals. <laughs> yep. Yep. Okay. And then it'll heal on its own. So it was, if there's a crack in it, I mean, it's, it's a stable fracture, what we call it. So it's not going to be shifting or moving around. So there's no bracing or casting or anything that you're going to do around the lungs or the ribs. Um, but just time to heal that. My uh, chest just got sore listening to that. So uh, yeah, I, I think too. we'll wrap that up. But, and then you watch them play a game and you're like, anyways, this has been fascinating, Mandy. I really appreciate you weighing in with some insight on it and how it all works. And even the fact that you're sometimes surprised what professional athletes do and, and continue good work at the U of M with all the programs. Great. Thanks very much for having me. Derek Taylor live from Regina, Saskatchewan. How are you, sir? Not just Regina. I'm in Regina's equivalent of Portage Place Mall, Saskatchewan. That's, that's where I'm at. And what is that mall's name? It's the Cornwall Center. It's right downtown. It was, uh, it was the stop uh, when I uh, lived here. It was my food court stop. There's some very <laughs> marginal Chinese food. There's an A&W, which is always a winner, an Orange Julius, and... Uh, uh, Regina style pizza, which if you live in Saskatchewan, you have to say you love Regina style pizza. Uh, if you're me and you've left, you can tell people that it is awful. So <laughs> don't, don't do it. That's what I was wondering. I was going to say, now I've been to Regina and whenever they play the bombers, we're going to bash Regina and Saskatchewan as much as we can, but there literally are better places than the mall to eat, sir. I'm, I'm taking a walk from my hotel, beautiful hotel, but it's about a 30-minute walk to the stadium. I thought, oh, well, I got to talk to Toast, so I'll just go through the food court and pick up something. I went to Freshie, I crushed in a burrito, and then I'll just make the walk to the stadium and uh, meet up with the Bombers when they arrive. Good for you, good for you. They are going to speak at 3.15 today, so we won't keep you too long or our usual time anyway because I know you do have to make that walk. Um, but a lot of the news has already come out injury-wise, and so let's start with Jackson Jeffcoat. Yeah, calf injury. Uh, he played only in the first quarter last week, and then uh, one of the final plays he made was uh, generating quarterback pressure that led to Demario Houston's interception. So Jeffcoat was effective, but uh, unable to go in practice this week and unable to play, which is going to lead to some interesting things. Uh, Celestin Haba, who had the big sack last week, will start, but it doesn't leave them with a lot as far as rotational defensive ends go. There is, of course, Anthony Bennett, their first-round draft pick, but you may well see, I spotted this at practice, and you're probably going to see in the game, big Miles Fox, who the Bombers just signed this week, may end up taking some uh, snaps out at defensive end at almost 300 pounds. Uh, he would be an intimidating presence coming off that edge. But the Bombers are going to have to figure out something because not having Jeff Coat and having only three defensive ends leaves him in a tough spot when you like to rotate different dudes through uh, those pass rushing spots. And then opportunity knocks for his replacement. And I'll let you say his name because I'll just end up messing it up anyway. But uh, what do you know of him? Yeah, Celestin Haba. He had the uh, he had the big sack third and ten last week. 
as Hamilton was trying to make that comeback down 11 points. Third and 10, he just dipped his shoulder on a really good tackle. It was a great play. It was a great play. Fantastic. And then as I went through the tape, I I looked at it, and one of Willie Jefferson's sacks, Jefferson beat Hobbit of the quarterback by about a 20th of a second. So really, he could well have had two sacks plus another quarterback pressure. Uh, Coach O'Shea loves him, talks about his pass rush moves, and uh, you know, he certainly showed it in week number one against good tackles that they have in, in Hamilton. So with uh, the lesser offensive line that the Riders currently have, you, you would expect he has a chance to show it off once again. Yeah, indeed. How's the rest of the health uh, going into tomorrow night's game? Uh, not bad. Um, not Dalton great, shown, though. Not great, yeah, Bob. <laughs> no, exactly. Dalton shown, uh didn't practice a ton this week. We didn't see him in practice, but we saw him not practice on Tuesday close practice on Wednesday. He's good to go with no designation of like game time decision or anything like that. But uh, I'll be curious if maybe they shift him around and get him a few snaps off when they, you know, when they go to run packages and, and stuff like that. And then uh, maybe the big news was Mike Miller goes to the six game injured list for this one. Uh, Miller didn't play last week. He was a late scratch last week with an injury, but he officially goes on the six game injured list, which means both of their fullbacks that they had on the roster are now on the six-game injured list, and it looks like it'll be American 30-year-old rookie Damian Jackson for the time being. Interesting. And I said Bob because I'm, I'm not calling you Bob. It's that reference to the madman when he gets in the elevator. How's your day? Not great, Bob. So, yeah, oh, um, no. Oh, no, I'm with you. I yeah, you're an old guy. You like old shows. I get it. I get it. Yeah, you you would get that. I'm just worried about our some of our listeners might go, oh, that's not Bob. But anyway, so I'll move on from that. Uh, Riders, what are we hearing around Trevor Harris and, and, and the situation, in fact, of how he got injured is, is really the talking point if indeed he is injured and unable to go tomorrow. Yeah, it was the final play of the game for folks who didn't see it. Final play of the game. Saskatchewan's winning by a touchdown, and they've got eight seconds to kill. And they just want Harris to roll out of the pocket, throw the ball as far as he can, and kill all the clock that he possibly can. And he rolls out of the pocket, and he throws it, and it didn't go very far, but it accomplished what he wanted. And then he got plowed into the ground and suffered a, a bruised hip, which limited him at practice yesterday, uh, pardon me, two days ago. Uh, yesterday, it was really interesting watching Ryder head coach Craig Dickinson talk about it. Uh, he was asked, hey, did Trevor Harris practice? And he said, uh, no comment, which Craig Dickinson talks he, he he's talking he's afraid not afraid to share stuff so for him to say no comment i thought was really telling of oh you really don't want everybody to know what condition harris is in just seeing reports from their walkthrough today that harris was with the first team but at walkthrough you don't drop back and throw and really test yourself so harris is on there as a game time decision but uh, if he plays i would understand it but if he plays there's no way he's 100 percent with that hip problem you could you might be able to pain kill it a little bit, but he, he won't be 100% for this one. I don't know how to describe that Elks Riders game other than very um, disappointing from both sides. Uh, uh, what do you make of the Riders this year? I thought they went into that game. I thought their defense would be strong, and I thought they would struggle on offense because uh, they don't their offensive line, they didn't really improve it. They ran back a lot of the same personnel and threw in some rookie tackles. They're receiving core. There's new bodies in it, but none of them, I feel like none of the rest of the league was clamoring to get a, a Jake Winicky or a Sean Bain or a Darrell Walker. Uh, Walker's now on the six-game injured list, so Tevin Jones, a depth player, goes in. I, I don't see a ton of firepower in this offense, and it's great to say we want to run the football, but you can only do that, you know, 
30% of the time in the Canadian Football League, and the, and the Bombers are going to eat that up if you think that's what's going to happen. So I, I don't see, like, if the Bombers put up 21 in the first quarter like they did against Hamilton, I, I just think the game's over because I don't know where Hamilton's getting 21 points. Pardon me, where Saskatchewan's getting 21 points against this Winnipeg defense. I, I, I see what Sass was trying to do. I feel like maybe guys who are free agents weren't really attracted to Sass because of the uncertainty with the GM and the head coach. Um, yeah, I, I, I fail to see how they're going to put up a lot of points and contend with some of these other potentially high-scoring teams in the West. Uh, that being said, uh, were you there for the, the Ed Tate-Drew-Wolotarski conversation about Zach Claros? I was just I was just on the perimeter. I'd, I'd already talked to Drew, so I was off talking to somebody else. Okay, I, I no. talked some of the yeah, some of the clips. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure. I, well, I didn't want to put you on the spot, but I kind of did there. But I didn't want to put you on the spot if you weren't. But I mean, I know you you saw the clips and read them, and I'll have Ed on a, at another time to talk about it. But what's what interesting in depth conversation and insight on not only Claris but Wolitarski himself, who who said Claris's work ethic essentially um, really changed, and he's not embarrassed to say how it improved his. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things. If you ask uh, Coach Mike O'Shea about Zach Kalaris, uh, you can ask about how his, he's a great, accurate passer. He's incredible playing out of the pocket and keeping plays alive. But he'll always O'Shea will always go back to leadership and work ethic, and he'll those will be his defaults with with Kalaris because it's just it, it, it's incredible. And you you watch the guy through his career. He, was, he went to the Grey Cup in 14. He was unbelievable to start 15, tore up his knee, came back in 16. 17, that Hamilton team was awful, and that began kind of the dark period in his life, in his career. 18, Sask, ugh, 19, Sask, concussion, traded the Toronto, traded the Winnipeg. Boom, he's on a rocket ride to the moon after that. Uh, and, and you see it, right, because you look at this team and you go, this is veteran-laden, and, and you know, these guys want to play with a great quarterback. And Nick Dembski said, hey, I signed a three-year deal because I saw Zach signed a three-year deal. So I wanted in on that, right? It's, he, he, he is by far, in my mind, the best quarterback in the league. And to have you know, all those intangibles that we don't get to see makes it even better. Yeah, indeed. Uh, we look forward to it. Uh, we'll let you get walking because that uh, availability with the Bombers and we'll have the latest from Derek in Regina on 680 CJB once he gets it is at 315. Uh, pre-game tomorrow at 6, kickoff at 8. Looking forward to it, DT. Thanks for this. Thanks, brother. And, and don't bring me anything back from Regina, especially from the mall. I'm okay. I don't need anything. Uh, all right. The uh, Dollarama, maybe? The, the Regina yeah. Dollarama is pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, done and done, Tolth. I wasn't planning on it anyway. So uh, thanks to Derek Taylor, our voice of the Bombers, and uh, more coming from that Bomber media availability this afternoon as well.